Uh, let, let's just begin with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful uh, for your goodness. Lord, we're grateful for your immutability, that you do not change. And uh, though time comes and goes with us, and we are like the flowers of the field that fade and perish, uh, Lord, you do not change, and you are eternal. Lord, you are beyond time. You're beyond our comprehension. You're infinite. And Lord, we, we thank you and praise you that we have such a, a big God uh, who is stable and unchanging amidst uh, all the uh, change and uh, uncertainty that accompanies life on this earth. Lord, so we, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you've revealed yourself in your word to us and that we can know you certainly and truly. We pray that even now, this morning, you would help us to see your word with clarity, that you would open our eyes afresh to see something of the glory of uh, Christ, even in Malachi. Uh, Lord, that you would change us, that you would convict us of sin, that you would expose areas that are not in conformity to the character of Christ, and that you would change us and shape us by your word. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I look, I think everybody's been uh, here at various times for Malachi, so uh, I won't go through any of the kind of introductory issues concerning Malachi, uh, we can just kind of jump into the text. Uh, I squeezed all of it. I could fit it all on one slide, so I just just crammed it all in there. Uh, But you can also just read on your Bible. Uh, That works perfectly well. So Malachi 3, 13 to 18. Maybe if somebody could read 13 to 15, and then I'll finish up 16 to 18. Would anybody like to read that? Go for it, Josh. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is in vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not, not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So as I reflected upon this text, I really saw kind of three movements in the text, three main segments. There's the accusation of the scorners, that that God doesn't make distinction between the righteous and the wicked. There's the fellowship of the faithful, uh, and then there's the, the promise of of God, the warning of God in the third part, how God responds to both the the scorners and the faithful. But as we know, the book of Malachi is shaped and structured by disputes, this kind of back and forth between the Lord and his people. And the Lord brings charges against them and then establishes that charge, typically. So what is the initial, uh, and I'll say kind of general, kind of vague charge that the Lord initially brings against his people. Keeping his orders. Okay. What about from this text early on, what, what would you point to in terms of the specific, well, the thing that the Lord takes issue with? Offerings. Or, even serve him. Keep his charge. Yeah, and so, again, that is getting to where he's establishing it, but initially he says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. It has to do with their speech and the kinds of things that they are saying about God. And, And even here, I'd want to simply pause and consider this initial indictment that the Lord brings against them. Your words have been hard against me. And I would ask, how often do we consider the significance of our words? Specifically, not just the ones that we say to each other, but the words that we say about God. Clearly, this is something that the Lord takes seriously, because Malachi is not that big. There's only four relatively small chapters. 
And here is the second time that the Lord brings up their words about God and to God. Uh, And I assure you that Israel had more than four chapters of sins that the Lord could have brought up. But this is what the Lord highlights. Not only is this here, but it's also earlier earlier in the chapter, their words about the Lord. And my estimation is that the average person and even the average Christian doesn't really think God cares about their words. But the scripture itself would lead us to a very different conclusion. And so I just want to highlight some passages. The Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, you know, God has just led his people out of Egypt in the Exodus, and now they're they're wandering in the wilderness. And things weren't always easy for the people of Israel while they're in the wilderness. They went sometimes days without food, without water, and it was hard. But this is how the people respond, and we see how the Lord feels about their words. So I just want to, I'll read this first one, Numbers 11.1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Does someone want to read the, the next passage in Numbers 14, 26 to 30. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness and of all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of... Jephunneh. <laughs> and, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Uh, and so we see this is a recurring theme in the book of Numbers, that the people are grumbling against the Lord, and it's something that the Lord takes very serious. It again happens in something called Korah's rebellion, and then so the the leaders rise up against Moses and Aaron. And they say, "Well, why are only you guys leading? Why not us?" Uh, and they grumble against Moses and against Aaron. Uh, and then we read this in a following passage. It says, "And the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up, and with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods, so that they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. The fire came out from the Lord and consumed the two hundred and fifty men offering the incense." And if you read on in the book of Numbers, you see that then the rest of the people get angry at Moses and Aaron because God brought judgment upon Korah and his followers. And they say, oh, why have you brought God's judgment upon them? And so they grumble more against Moses. And then there's more judgment that comes. And it says, now those who died in the plague were 14,000 700 besides those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. My point is just to highlight that God takes grumbling seriously. Uh, And this might be things that you say to others. It might just be the inner workings of your heart, uh, kind of the meditations of your mind, and you're grumbling against the Lord and against His providence. And it's something that God takes seriously serious. Uh, for Jesus says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his e- evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, says Jesus, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. And I just highlight this because it's so foolish and, and superficial to think that The only thing that God cares about concerning our speech is whether or not we say this list of bad words that is defined by our culture. Uh, And certainly, Scripture tells us to put away obscene talk. Uh, But the Lord has a much more comprehensive regard for how we speak. I'm sure that there are Christians, I know, that they would never say any curse words 
but they're fine just grumbling all day uh, concerning their circumstances, concerning politics. Listen to conservative Christians talk about their governments and their leaders. And you might say, well, they're not grumbling against God. They're grumbling against the politicians. But God claims in his word that he put the politician there, uh, that there's no authority except that which is instituted by God. We grumble about our hardships, not realizing that God has, God says, he claims for himself that he has ordained those for our good. And so our grumbling becomes subtle accusations against God's goodness, against God's justice, against God's wisdom, his love. And people don't realize that God has a track record of consuming people in judgment for those kinds of thoughts and words and actions. Uh, And if God said to, to many of us, I think, throughout our lives, your words have been hard against me, we would probably respond like the Israelites, Malachi, and say, how have we spoken against you? In what way? So it's just a, just a general thing of our, our words matter. Not just the ones we say to each other, but the thoughts and words even about God that we think. So let us rather pray like David. Uh, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The Lord cares about our words because ultimately, like Jesus highlights, they reflect the condition of our heart. Uh, let's come back to Malachi. Now, now, what are the particular words against God that he takes issue with? So, your words have been hard against me, general charge, and then there's more specific evidence that he's going to bring forth. But what's the particular words that he takes issue with? Vain. It's vain to serve God. Yeah, good. It's vain to serve God. And why do they feel like it's vain to serve God? There's no profit in it. They're claiming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Profit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's vain because essentially God treats the wicked person, he, he might bless the wicked person just as much as he blesses the, the good person. And they're saying, well, what's the point then? If God doesn't make distinction, uh, if he doesn't reward me for my obedience and for my goodness, and what's the point? It's vain. Uh, and if you remember, this dispute is very similar to the one we saw earlier in the chapter. It starts in 2.17, uh, where God says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? And this is almost identical in the substance. They're saying, God isn't really just. He doesn't make distinctions. He, you know, the evil put the Lord to the test. And they not only prosper, but then they escape, and it's not a problem. So it's just interesting to me. I haven't quite figured out exactly the reason, but there's basically a repeat of the same dispute, that it's a complaint and an accusation against God's justice that he rewards sinners. But there's an assumption underneath this conclusion. So the premise is kind of in verse 14, that it's it's in vain to serve God, uh, that there's no profit in keeping his charge or walking as in mourning, that the arrogant are blessed. It's there in 15 too. The arrogant are blessed, evildoers prosper, and God is kind of just AWOL. God's not in the picture. And then they draw the conclusion yeah, the conclusion is, therefore, it's vain to serve God. There's no point. So there might be many assumptions underneath that, but I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and just assume that they actually are perceiving things correctly in the sense that they're looking at their circumstances and they really are seeing evildoers prosper. They really are seeing the arrogant be blessed outwardly you know, in their circumstances And then there's maybe faithful people who are struggling and experiencing hardship. Uh, That's not beyond the realm of possibility uh, within Scripture. We know the book of Job. So let's just give them the benefit of the doubt and, and assume that they're seeing things correctly. However, they then conclude, well, if that's the case, it's vain to serve God. So what might be an assumption that's underneath that conclusion? 
This life is the only one that matters. Yeah, certainly there's no regard for eternity uh, and that if it doesn't happen right here and right now, then it's insignificant and doesn't matter. Anything else? I was struggling between two and that was the other one that I I just left to the side. So I'm glad you highlighted it. But the other one that I would highlight is that it's only worth serving God. This is what they're thinking. It's only worth serving God if I get something from Him. It's a purely transactional relationship that they have between God. It's just business. It's contractual. I put in my work and I get my reward. And if I don't get my reward, then there's no point in me putting in my work. Uh, And you know, that's that kind of attitude makes sense if you're an employee and you're relating to your employer. You know, if, if I'm going to show up for work every day uh, and put in my hours, I expect to be paid. And if at the end of my you know, two weeks, you're, you're not going to give me a paycheck, well, then I'm not going to work for you. I'm going to take my labor somewhere else. Uh, and that's okay. That's an okay way to relate to an employer. That's not an okay way to relate to God, where they say, well, I've served you, I did my part, but if you're not going to pay me, if you're not going to reward me for my obedience, then there's no profit. Uh, It's a transactional kind of attitude and mentality in the way that they relate to God. He's just the cosmic employer. And this, this kind of attitude reminds me of something that we see reflected in the older brother, in the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, so if you're familiar with the, prodigal, that, the parable, uh, the, you know, the younger brother goes and he makes a wreck of his life and then he comes back and the father throws this great feast for him and the father comes out and says, you know, come on, your brother has returned. It's time to celebrate and rejoice. But the older brother refuses to go in. And he says to the father, look, I've served you these many years, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. The attitude is that I've done my part. You owe me. I've put up, I've held up my side of the bargain. Now it's time for you to hold up your side of the bargain. And the issue that I'm trying to highlight here is just simply, How do you relate to God? Is God kind of this cosmic employer who after you have done your diligence and you've served, done your part, you expect God to give you the the wages of blessing? Or do you recognize that God has a rightful claim on your joyful worship, obedience and adoration, simply by virtue of the fact that He made you Simply by virtue of the fact that He daily sustains you. He is your creator. You are His creature. But then there's more, especially if you're genuinely a believer in Jesus Christ. There's a lot more. He not only created you, but then He redeemed you. And that by the humiliation of His Son through the incarnation, coming to earth, suffering with us and among us, and then ultimately for us, and the horrors of the cross and all that meant for Christ to make atonement for our sins. And then we have the audacity to say, if something doesn't go our way in this life, yeah, but what's the profit of serving Him if I don't get this and that and the other thing? Isn't it sufficient that God is God, and that He is worthy of our worship and our service, simply by virtue of who He is, and then especially what He's done for us in Christ. You know, or will you only serve God, like them, if I get what I want, when I want? That is a, that's an ugly attitude towards our, our God, our covenant God who knows us and loves us. And I, and I don't want to be insensitive to people's personal tragedies, because obviously these things are, are very heavy. But I do want to highlight it, because this is what happens when people have a kind of transactional relationship with God, that I serve you, you bless me, this is how it's supposed to work. Uh, but then when it doesn't quite work that way, and they experience a significant hardship, tragedy in their life, and they come to this conclusion, well, then what's the point? You know, if my marriage is ultimately going to fall apart and they're going to leave, well, then what's the point in serving God? If God's not going to heal my child, then what's the point? Why do I do all this? 
and it exposes this kind of transactional relationship that you don't, you're not really in relationship with God because of who He is and, and what He's done for you, and you recognize that He's worthy of your love and your obedience and your service, but you're just kind of looking to get something out of God. And, and certainly, I also want to say it's possible to lapse into a season of bad theology where, where you're relating to God in an unhealthy way in a time of tremendous suffering. But if that's really the way that you relate to God in this kind of business transactional, I, I obey, you bless. That's how it works, God. Uh, then, then we haven't understood the gospel. And to draw this connection a little bit more, from the, the parable of the prodigal son. In Luke 15, does anybody know why did Jesus tell that parable? Certainly, it teaches us about God's forgiveness, but that wasn't actually the immediate impetus towards Jesus telling the parable. Uh, what was the explicit purpose that Jesus told the parable in Luke 15? Welcome back any, anyone who would turn to him. Yeah, certainly it teaches us about the character of God. We see that. But it's interesting, if you actually look in in Luke 15, verse 1, it says, Now tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus tells the parable, and it says, So he told them a parable, So Jesus is really addressing in all of those parables, not primarily the sinners and the tax collectors, but he's addressing the Pharisees that are grumbling against him. And he actually tells three parables, uh, all towards the same end. Uh, And so, you know, I've heard this discussion of like, well, it's called the parable of the prodigal son, but it really should be called the parable of the forgiving father. But I would say it really should be called the parable of the self-righteous brother, uh, because that is actually what Jesus is getting at. That's who he's speaking to in one sense. Uh, but of course, we learn about the character of God and what he's like in it as well. But in Malachi, the Israelites are grumbling. Why? Because God doesn't judge the wicked like we think he should. Uh, in Luke 15, the Israelites are grumbling against Jesus. Why? Because he doesn't judge the wicked like he should. In fact, he not only doesn't judge them, but he receives them and he forgives them and he has fellowship with them. And I think in both instances, there's not only this transactional relationship that is exposed, but there's a self-righteousness that is being exposed in them. Because the only reason that someone would have a transactional relationship with God is if you thought you were righteous enough to demand something from God. You're only going to relate to God that way if you think you have a a foot to stand on and say, well, you should bless me now because I have done my part, that you have a standing to make a claim. But the only way that you think and say foolish things like that is because you don't understand sin and you don't understand God's holiness. The Pharisees, for all their religiosity, had a very superficial and shallow view of sin. Uh, No doubt, the Israelites in Malachi had the same problem. And when you don't understand sin and you don't understand holiness, you begin to think that you're a good person and that you actually have something that, that you can make a claim on God and that He owes you something. Or at least He owes you more than the you know, flagrantly unrighteous, sinful people down the street. So when they receive blessing and you don't, you begin to rise up against God's justice. But if you understand your sin and God's holiness, you don't rise up at God's justice. You just don't. You dare not. You you go to the temple, as Jesus would say, and you beat your chest and you say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's all. When you even have a little knowledge of your sin, and God's holiness, the last thing you want is a transactional, contractual, legal relationship with God. That's the last thing that you want. Because you know that if you get justice, you get judgment. 
Because that's the only thing that you rightfully deserve. And you, you, don't, you don't make distinct, distinction between other people because you know that you are just as guilty and just as vile and wretched as anyone else down the street. And whatever you do have, it's of, God, it's of God's grace and kindness towards you. So you plead for God's mercy, not His justice in, in that sense, not towards you. But they continue on with this, saying, What is the profit of keeping His charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And another thing, all this is just so rich to me in one sense of exposing their, their attitudes. They say, what is the profit of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Uh, you know, what does that tell us about their mourning before the Lord? Well, what might we infer? It's a vague question, but... Maybe that they don't take joy in or find joy in worshiping God. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I think what it's talking about here, that their mourning before the Lord is, is kind of acts of repentance. Uh, they're acts of contrition, that they're trying to, you know, religious acts. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, we see things like, you know, they, they would fast and, and put on sackcloth and ashes and, and that kind of stuff. And so I, I think it's these outward acts of, of repentance. To me, it just really highlights that it's artificial. <laughs> they're going through the motions, or even worse, they're intentionally acting or pretending because they think that doing it is going to get them something from God. Again, you know, imagine a spouse who commits adultery, and then for a season, that, that spouse who committed adultery is very sad, and, and they're very contrite, and they're very heartbroken, and then Let's say one month later, the, the other spouse is still standoffish. They're still cold. They're still very hurt. And they're, they're not really having it. And then the, the person who commits adultery says, Well, if you're not going to respond to my repentance, if you're not going to receive me, then what's the point? What's the profit of me acting all sad? What, what's the profit of me being sad? Well, I'd be like, What's the point? What, what's the profit? Like, are you sad? Are you contrite? Are you penitent? Or are you putting on a show? Which one is it? Uh, and the fact that they say, you know, what's the profit of us walking as in mourning? It just highlights that there's no genuine repentance. There's no genuine contrition of their sin. But they think that by doing walking as in mourning of their sin or as in contrition, that, oh, well, well now God's going to bless us. But if he doesn't bless us, then, then we're done with this. Uh, and so, even though the Old Testament has a lot more external forms, just in temple worship and, and all these things, we know that God is ultimately concerned about the heart. It reminds me of, this passage reminds me of Isaiah twenty nine thirteen. It's something that Jesus quotes. And it says, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. And, and I read this and I think, yeah, their, their contrition, their repentance is a commandment taught by men. Like, they know they should be contrite for their sin. And they should mourn over their sin. But th- there's no gen- genuine mourning in their hearts over their sin. It, it's a commandment taught by men that there's no reality in their hearts. Yeah, and it's just another indication of their disposition towards God. They're going through the motions to get something from Him. And as a side note, I would just say this is something that we should be perpetually confronting ourselves with uh, because it's just so easy. It's easier to act righteous or to act spiritual than it is to actually be spiritual. It's easier to go through the motions. It's easier to, to play church and to look the part than it is uh, to actually have these realities going on in our heart. And so what we need to do is not pretend and then demand something from the Lord, but, but plead with God that He would actually do these things in us. You know, if, if we don't have contrition over our sin, then that we should plead with the Lord that He would do that, that He would work that into our hearts. If we don't have joy in our salvation, the answer is not to just perpetually act happy in, in Christ, but to, to actually 
plead with the Lord that he would open our eyes to see more of the glory of Christ, to know more of the joy of our salvation. But it's easier just to pretend. And I think that's what they're doing. So we need to keep moving. So verse 15 says, Now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So these are the words of the scorners. Clearly, they're condemned by God. Uh, But then we have this contrast in verses 16 and 17. Can someone read those for us, 16 and 17? Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. So, So Malachi simply says that they spoke with one another. But what can we infer from the context about what kind of speech that was. Uh, meaning, was it good uh, speech that the Lord looked favorably upon, or was it similar to what preceded? It says, before him, those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So they were doing the right thing. Yeah, so, so here, we, we don't know what the words are, but we, we can tell from the context that this is a good kind of speech. Uh, this is the speech of those who fear the Lord. They esteem his name. As verse 17 says, they are God's treasured possession. They serve God. And obviously, whatever they're saying, uh, the Lord looks with favor upon. So, it's being contrasted with those who are scorning God's word, slandering his character, and undermining faith in his promises. So, I would assume that they are gathering and reminding each other of the truth of God's word, even when it's not apparent that God is good, that God is just, that God is faithful. I would assume that they're exhorting one another uh, concerning sin and righteousness. Brother, don't do that. That's not going to lead to blessing. That's not going to lead to true life. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. I would assume that they're uh, not only encouraging and exhorting one another, but that they're simply giving glory to God with their words. And I have at least two points of application here. One that focuses on the fact that they spoke, and one that focuses on the fact that it was with one another. Uh, So, does anybody think, especially in, in relation to what comes earlier, so number one, they spoke. Some Israelites spoke against God. Their words were hard against the Lord, and their words revealed a heart of unbelief. But here we see that others spoke, and they, in one sense, spoke for God, and their heart revealed, or their words revealed a heart of faith. Uh, and we already saw this. Jesus highlights that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. For out of the heart come Thoughts of murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Uh, These are what defile a person. And if this is true concerning sin, it's just as true concerning righteousness. And obviously it's not perfect in the life of the believer, but the words of the one who fears God and honors and esteems his name will reflect, reflect that in the way that we speak, inevitably. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And not only the absence of sinful words, but by the presence of righteous, God-honoring words. So, for example, in Ephesians, let's see, Ephesians 5, 4, Paul says, Let there be no filthiness, filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. So, if... We are to just write down all of your words in any given day. What would someone learn about you? If someone could just read a transcript of your day, of all the words that come out of your mouth, would they read this and think, oh man, this is a grateful person who's persuaded in God's goodness. This is a person who really believes that God is good, that he's just, that he's sovereign, even over the adverse circumstances of life and actually intends them for our good according to infinite love and wisdom and goodness? Uh, Do your words reflect a heart 
that is filled with worship and honor and love for God. Not only is there the absence of filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking, which are out of place, but righteousness consists in the, the positive aspect as well. The presence of, Paul highlights, thanksgiving. And of course, there could be other things, but this is what Paul highlights here. Um, so the goal of God-honoring speech is not just a list of do-not-say words, but also the presence of speech that is filled with thanksgiving and praise. Or we could consider another text in Ephesians, where Paul says, less vertical, more horizontal, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. So, yes, our talk shouldn't be corrupting, but we haven't succeeded just because we're not tearing other people down, but we're actually supposed to be building others up so that it may give grace to those who hear. These are the kinds of words that reflect a heart filled by the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. So as we consider what the righteous spoke and the way that the righteous speak, we want to reflect not on just and emphasize, the goal is to not grumble. The goal is to not bring accusations against God. But the goal is equally to speak words of praise, to speak words of thanksgiving, to encourage one another, to build one another up in words of, of grace, that, that minister grace to one another. So, they, they spoke. That's significant. Our, our words matter. But we also see that they spoke with one another. What application what might we draw from the fact that they spoke with one another? There was community. Mm-hmm. There's community. Any other thoughts or add to that? Apparently we are praising the Lord with one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, we don't know exactly what they're saying, but we can legitimately infer from the text that they're, they're doing God-honoring things with, as they speak with one another. Uh, and, and I would highlight that, they, that holiness is a group project. God intends for His people to gather, to remind, and to exhort one another in the truth. Hebrews 3.13 puts it this way, 12 and 13, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's a problem. That's a warning and a danger. What's the solution? But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So the defense against an evil, unbelieving heart that that leads us away from God is to exhort one another, which requires being in fellowship, in community with other people who love the Lord, who are willing to call out our sin and our errors to to highlight and expose our ways in which we can need to be corrected, but then also encouraging us in the truth, reminding us of the truth. Uh, And that's, that's just, we can't do that merely on a Sunday morning. There, there needs to be more fellowship, whether it's formal, uh, you know, going to a home fellowship group, or whether it's the informal of just being with other believers, such that we, we are being, we're exhorting and reminding and encouraging another, one another as often as possible in the truth, because we need it. God has created, ordained the church because we need one another. So, Now, we have these two groups of people set forth in verses 13. You know, those who spoke against God, they said it's in vain to serve God. And then we have this other group of people that they came together and they spoke. And now we read the Lord's response in the rest of verse 16b to 18. Then the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And the main point is that contrary to the the accusations of the scorner, God does pay attention. 
God does hear. And God says, a book of remembrance is written. What effect should it have on us that a book of remembrance is being written? Sobering. Sobering? <laughs> yes, I, I think it's sobering. Anything else? We are talking about eternity here. Mm-hmm. In future, I mean, what does it matter if it isn't written if there's no future? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah and that, that's kind of the first thing that came to my mind, is that it should lift our eyes and our hearts and our affections to the age to come, to have an eternal perspective. And that is sobering. It's true that there might be times in this sinful, fallen world where the, the faithful suffer, those who genuinely love the Lord and trust Him and are seeking to honor Him, where, where they suffer. And there are times when the those who oppose God and defy Him and rebel against Him, that they might prosper. That's, that's true. That's possible. But then are we then to conclude, like the Israelites in Malachi, well, then it's vain to serve God. What's the point? What's the profit? No. For many reasons, but one of which is that the whole story has not been told. Just because we don't see justice meted out today, right here, right now, it doesn't mean that God is not just. Just because the sentence of justice is delayed doesn't mean it will never be executed. There is a book of remembrance being written. Jesus says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And that should be encouraging to us, that we have a God in relation to His people who's not looking for ways to judge us, who's not looking for ways to find fault with us, but He's looking for ways to bless us. He's looking for ways to remember the good that we seek to do in His name and reward us for it, even though we're doing it by His grace. (laughs) It's all of Him, and yet it delights the Lord to bestow favor upon the good that He's producing in us. It's a great, we have a gracious God. And here in Malachi, it's certainly a positive thing. A book of remembrance is being written concerning those who feared the Lord, who esteemed his name. But John picks up on this idea of a book being written, and it's a negative thing in the judgment. In Revelation 20.12, John has a vision of the end, and he says, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And John concludes the passage saying, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And I'm just, just skimming over this. One last passage that I would bring to our minds is 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. Paul specifically says concerning Christians as well. So the the books that were written by which the unbelievers were judged, certainly that's one thing, but then we shouldn't think, well, we're just in Jesus, so nothing we do matters. Uh, that, That there's no eternal significance to our actions in this life. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, Concerning Christians, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So, here in Malachi and everywhere else in Scripture, we are reminded that we don't presently see the full story and that we need to look beyond the parameters of this life to have a biblical perspective. And then, yeah, God says in verse 18, then, to, to these people who doubt that, that God really sees, that He hears, that, that God is active, and, and you know, makes distinction between the righteous and the wicked, and, and God says, then once more, you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. And for now, we have to trust that God is faithful to His Word, that He is coming 
like he said, that his promises are reliable, and we seek to faithfully serve him, knowing that our labor is not in vain, because a book of remembrance is being written, that he's going to make distinction between those who serve him and those who do not serve him. Regardless of what the world says, regardless of what even our flesh says, regardless of what our circumstances might say to us. And where does that confidence and that hope come from? Biblical exhortation is not simply just to believe, to to leap out into the dark and just trust that God is going to be there somewhere on the other side. No, we look back and we see that we have a well-founded faith in, in a God who has shown himself to be faithful and reliable and makes good on his promises, that Christ even came in confirmation of the promises made to the patriarchs. And even now today, there is an empty tomb because God is faithful to his promises. We have a warranted faith in the goodness of God and in the justice of God, and even in the face of circumstances that might testify otherwise. That if we only looked at our immediate circumstances, if we only look with kind of a tunnel vision or you know, blinders about what is immediately before us, we might be tempted to come to other conclusions. But when we consider the truth of God's word comprehensively, then we can know that that God God is faithful. He's going to bring everything to pass just as he has promised. And part of that ultimately is you get down to the cross. And and we think about God's, God's goodness and his mercy and his love for us, even in the midst of opposition and hardship, where does a warrant and justification for for faith that, no, God is still good. God is still loving in the midst of this. Ultimately, it's going to come down to the foundation that this is a God who who didn't spare his own son, but, but graciously gave him up for us all. Will he not with him give us all things that we need? Is God now, after having given His Son, having His Son slaughtered upon the cross, going to now neglect goodness? Now is He going to just forget justice in His creation after sacrificing Christ to ensure that justice would be fully satisfied, that His goodness and mercy would be set forth and put on display? No, certainly not. We have, we have a well-founded affirmation, conviction that God is good and God is just, even when it doesn't seem like it sometimes. That's it. You know, looking at Romans 8.32, like you just quoted, it's interesting, reflecting back how you were commenting how they had this transactional view of God, as though you know, they had done something for God and now they needed something in return. I mean, it's, in a sense, it is a transaction between us and God, although mm-hmm. it's, but it's so much greater mm-hmm. than anything we, could, we would have come up with. I mean, you know, just a few verses before, he had actually got had told them about a transaction. He said, put me to the test, mm-hmm. and I will abundantly bless yeah. you beyond anything you imagine. And, you know, Romans 8.32 tells us what that transaction was. Mm-hmm. So, I suppose, I think there's, it, it's true that we, it's not like we serve God and then, like, we earned his favor or anything, but it's actually so much greater. The transaction is so much greater than that. Yeah, uh, that's something that I... I started to pursue because it is a bit of a delicate issue. Jesus tells us repeatedly to pursue all the promises of God are based upon based upon our own pursuit of our own good. You know, Jesus says, "Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and seal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven." Well, that promise only and that appeal only makes sense if Jesus is assuming that we're going to pursue what's best for us. So I, I don't want to make it seem like we aren't, our pursuit of God and our service of God isn't to the exclusion of our good. We pursue both of them mutually. But there, the unhealthy transactional relationship is when you are pursuing your good apart from the glory of God, or when you're pursuing your good apart from the good of others. Uh, God has bound these things together such that the way that we are to pursue our, our good is in the glory of God. We pursue our good by serving others and doing good to others. And, and so certainly, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't, ultimately, we do pursue our good, but we pursue that in God, and we pursue that in serving others and doing good to others. So 
it's a it's a bit of a delicate issue that you yeah could could get a little confusing. That'd be my simple answer. But yeah, and then when we do that, when we give ourselves to serving God, then He abundantly repays us far beyond what we give Him. Like mm-hmm. he, he multiplies it and pours it out back upon us, so that we're not we haven't lost anything yeah. in the sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, and and kind of. I would say the way the system's rigged is that whatever we give to God, it's it's what He's already given to us. Like we can't return to the Lord in anything but that which He's already given to us. So it's the Lord is being merciful. We're not adding to Him anything that He doesn't already have. A- any last comments or questions before we close? Kind of reminds me of when I was a child, my mother would give me an allowance, and I'd save it up to buy her a birthday present. She <laughs> yeah. gave me money. <laughs> So, yeah. you know, where's the... I mean, the joy of being able to give was one thing, but mm-hmm. it came from her to start with. It's, it comes from God to begin with. Yeah. Our very life. Yeah. Uh, well, why don't, we, why don't we pray? We're going to finish on time this morning. Father, we, we thank you for your word, that it is true and trustworthy. We thank you for how you have revealed yourself. Uh, and Lord, I, I think about the certainty and the trustworthiness of your promises that uh, you made to Abraham, you made to Isaac and Jacob, uh, and you said that all nations would be blessed through your offspring. You said that a light would come to Gentiles. Uh, and here we are, thousands of years later, on the other side of the world, praising and submitting to, serving Yahweh, the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You bring your will to pass. Uh, and just as you've done it in, in the past, you will do it in the future. And so, Lord, we, we thank you uh, for your promises, uh, that you're worthy of our trust. And, and I just pray that that would be reflected in our words. As we think about you, Lord, as we speak about you, uh, that there would be words of thanksgiving, words of praise, uh, words that communicate trust and dependence. And Lord, as we speak to one another, that, that there would be words of encouragement, words of exhortation, words of kindness and comfort and upbuilding. Let all of our, our words be seasoned with salt and may they be honoring to you. Uh, and may you never bring such a charge against us that, that our words have been hard against you. Lord, may they be words that uh, honor and glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.